Alan Wolf is a sociologist from Boston University. Wolf spent two years interviewing the American middle class about their beliefs and their fears and their dreams. Well, predictably, Wolf found that most Americans embrace three central values God, family, and country. But Wolf also identified a new value that has taken the culture by storm. This new virtue has become so entrenched in Western civilization that Wolf refers to it as the 11th commandment, or simply, thou shalt not judge. Tolerance is now the supreme American moray. Of course, Americans have always been tolerant of free speech, in differing opinions, in religious freedom. In fact, the right application of tolerance is not only an American value, it's a Christian virtue. I mean, in the political realm, Christians support the right of all religions to practice and proselytize their faith. Every human being has been made in the image of God. Every human being is born with a free will. That's a gift from God. Unlike Islam, Christianity doesn't use the sword to force compliance. It respects the choice that God has given to every human being to decide their own destiny. Christians want all religions to have unlimited access to the marketplace of ideas. Whenever that happens, the power of God's Word wins over hearts and minds. In the parable of the tares, Jesus predicted that the weed and the wheat would both grow up together. The believers and the unbelievers would grow together side by side in the same field. It's not until the harvest or the future judgment that they'll finally be separated. This means that in the interim, there has to be a certain tolerance for people who choose a different lifestyle or a belief system than we do. It's the Christian's job not to uproot the weeds and punish them and rush them to judgment. No, we've been called to influence them with love and turn them to Jesus. You recall how Jesus treated the adulterous woman who the Pharisees wanted to stone. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus was the only person in the crowd that day who had the right to uproot a weed. But instead, he showed tolerance in hopes that this woman would repent. Hey, this is our role in the world today. Jesus will bring down the hammer in due time when He returns. But in the meantime, we're trying to love this world to repentance and to faith. In this sense, Christians need to be tolerant people. Yet tragically, the definition of the term tolerance has changed in recent years. Today's idea of tolerance is very, very different than it once was. Several decades ago, novelist E.M. Forster, he wrote this, Tolerance is a very dull virtue. It is boring. It is negative. It merely means bearing with people, being able to stand things. You see, prior generations defined tolerance as putting up with something or someone not especially liked. There's a good example. You tolerated the weather. Or a burned dinner. But no one was naive enough to suggest that a rainy day is better than a sunny day. Or that a charred piece of meat was as delicious as a correctly cooked cut of steak. I mean, to tolerate something didn't mean you had to respect it or like it or even agree with it. 
You just endured it. But today, the virtue of tolerance has gotten a massive facelift. It means something very, very different. It's the assumption that all values, all beliefs, all lifestyles, all truth claims should be given equal merit. Black and white has blurred to gray. Tolerance is no longer just respecting the right of someone who disagrees. It's accepting their argument as equal in weight as yours, as equal in authority and benefit as yours. Alan Bloom, author of The Closing of American Mind, He writes this of the new tolerance. It teaches that, and I quote, In the past, men always thought that they were right. And that led to wars, persecution, slavery, racism, chauvinism. But now, rather than correct past mistakes and really be right, the point is to not think you're right at all. Today's tolerance assumes that nobody is perfectly right and everybody is partially right. The way out of our mess is no longer seriously sought. We we just want everybody to be happy in the midst of the mess by making them feel good that they've got an opinion. Dorothy Sayers, she puts it this way. In the world, it is called tolerance. But in hell, it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. What she's saying is that today's tolerance has thrown in the towel on its quest for truth. In modern pluralistic America, the truth has become too risky. If we seek truth, we'll offend someone. So in the name of tolerance, we have succumbed to despair. And this is what had happened in the ancient church of Thyatira. Today's new tolerance had taken over. You see, the Christians in Thyatira had lost their backbone. They had refused to stand up for what was true and right and loving. Thyatira was a church full of jellyfish. G.K. Chesterton once said, Tolerance is the virtue of the man who has lost his convictions. That was true of the fourth in Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, the church at Thyatira. I've entitled this morning's message, Dire in Thyatira. The situation was extreme and serious and alarming. This church was in dire straits and Jesus gives them a dire warning. Jesus begins his letter in verse 18. And remember the reoccurring pattern common in these seven letters. First, there's always a revelation. We get a glimpse of a specific trait of the glorified Christ we saw back in chapter 1. That's followed by a commendation. Hey, churches are not all bad and they're not all good. They're no perfect churches. In fact, you'll find out soon if you haven't already that churches are a mixed bag. From time to time, they need a pat on the back. From time to time, they need a kick in the pants. And thus, after the commendation comes a correction. In verse 20, Jesus has a few things against them. Well, we'll begin verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now notice how Jesus introduces himself. He's the Son of God who sees and knows and puts His foot down. 
Remember John and the early church to whom he writes, Jesus writes here, were accustomed to his humility. The lowly carpenter from Nazareth was still fresh on their minds. Whenever Jesus worked a miracle, he would tell them not to speak of it to anyone. He went out of his way not to promote himself or build a reputation. Jesus must have drawn the PR people nuts. He avoided publicity at all costs. Jesus made it clear by word and deed that he had come to serve, not be served. But now Jesus is writing to these seven churches. And he's reminding them that there is more to him now than what was revealed then. At his first coming, that was only part of the story. When he ascended to heaven, he was then clothed with glory and power and dominion and authority. In fact, today, Jesus is king of the jungle. He roars. He reigns. He'll soon take over. Don't you dare treat him lightly. Yes, Jesus came as a lamb to be slaughtered. But his days as a sacrifice are over. He's also a lion and he's on on the prowl. And he's about to spring out of the heavens. The church needs to see our king, not just as he once was, but as he now is. It's a jungle out there. But Jesus alone can tame the jungle and bring order out of our chaos. Well, notice how he describes himself to Thyatira. First, he says that he's the Son of God. Again, these first century believers, they didn't doubt his deity, but they were up close and personal with his humanity. Now, though, he puts his Godhead on display. The title, Son of God, blew their minds. Understand, in Hebrew thought, the son of a goat is a goat. The son of a man is a man. Thus, the Son of God is God. That's right. Jesus was God. And this is what exposes the deficient faith of both Mormons and Muslims. Yes, they pay respect to Jesus' earthly ministry, but they both deny His deity. Jesus is not just a man come from God. He is God come to man. He is the second person of the triune God. Well, unlike the many temples of the neighboring cities, Thyatira had only one temple, and it was dedicated to Apollo, the sun god. The pagans worshipped the sun in the sky, but the believers in Jesus, they worshipped the sun's creator, God's son in heaven. And the son of God, he says, has eyes like a flame of fire. They're searching and they're searing and they're penetrating. You know, Thyatira was the least and the smallest of the cities of Asia. Of these seven letters, seven cities that are addressed here in Revelation 2 and 3. These believers, they must have thought that they could slip through the cracks. That the Lord wouldn't pay attention to their little church. But not so. Jesus sees all. He now has x-ray vision. He cuts through the facade and examines the heart. He sees every deed and every thought. And he's not afraid to put his foot down. He says his feet are like fine brass. Brass was the strongest metal known in the ancient world. Jesus has a heavy foot. You know, here's what comes as a shock to modern Americans who pride themselves in their tolerance. Jesus isn't afraid of offending people. The truth of God and the glory of God is more important to Jesus than your feelings. Today, leaders can't make a simple decision without issuing an apology to the special interest group they offended in the process. But when Jesus issues a decree, He stands on an immovable foundation. 
He puts his foot down. His truth is non-negotiable. His word is eternal. Well, this is the revelation to the church at Thyatira. Now comes the commendation, verse 19. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. This was an active church. They had a full slate of service and good deeds. They were following Jesus' earthly example. You knew they believed because they had a love for one another. And they weren't greater than their master. Oh no, Jesus washed feet and they too eagerly served one another. They did it all believing that Jesus would use them. And finally, they endured. They loved, they had service, they had faith, and they had patience. They patiently endured. Rather than just a flash in the pan, they stuck with it. Hey, any Beatles fans in the crowd this morning? Yeah, there's a few. Have you ever heard the Beatles tune that starts out, Scrambled eggs, oh my baby, how I love your legs. You ever heard that tune? That's the first line of a famous tune written by Paul McCartney. Well, that's not actually the finished product. That was Paul's first attempt at the lyrics. After several tries, he swapped those lyrics for these. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. (laughs) Now you recognize the tune. But the difference between scrambled eggs and yesterday is endurance. Well, the church at Thyatira, they had love and service and faith and endurance. And they grew in all the above. But here it comes. Their commendation was quick, but their correction is long and thorough and painful. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And those are scary words when they come from the king of the jungle. Get out your notepad. You want to jot down a few things. I've got a few things against you, Jesus says. And first on the the list, catch this. He says, because you allow or literally tolerate. Several translations use that very word. It's ironic. We're going to find that this church was more tolerant than Jesus. Can you imagine? They allowed a false prophetess to have run of their church. It was dire in Thyatira. Church leaders allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There was an influential woman in the church at Thyatira. She had a new message that led to a lewd lifestyle. Now notice in verse 20, she's called Jezebel. If you're a new parent, If you're expecting a child, don't think a biblical name for your kid would be cool, and so you'll just choose Jezebel. Please don't do that to your daughter. I mean, Jezebel is the most notorious gal in the Bible. Jezebel was the wicked witch from the north. Naming your daughter Jezebel would be like naming your son Judas or Hitler or or Steve Spurrier. (laughs) Don't do it. More than likely, the word Jezebel was a nickname for this woman causing problems in the church at Thyatira. You see, she had taken over leadership of the church. And you got to wonder, where are the men? Throughout the New Testament, Christian men are given leadership roles in the church. But in Thyatira, the men had taken a backseat. 
This gal had a charismatic personality. She had a feigned spirituality. She called herself a prophetess. And she claimed to speak for God. She had this series of really cool teaching DVDs that she used to seduce and deceive the unsuspecting Christians. Hey, this all harkened back to Old Testament Israel when that weak King Ahab was dominated by the wicked Queen Jezebel. You remember that Jezebel? She used her position of leadership to subvert her husband's rule and to corrupt God's people. And likewise, the church at Thyatira had been hijacked by the same sort of woman. In the absence of strong and biblical male leadership, a wily woman had grabbed control. Now we read of this Queen Jezebel back in 1 Kings. She was from Phoenicia. She was an idol-worshipping pagan. When she married into the Israeli royal family, she brought with her false gods, the Baal and the Azurah, the gods of nature and fertility or power and perversion. Not only did she import her idolatry, she sponsored 850 pagan prophets to spread this spiritual poison. These were the priests that Elijah challenged to that showdown on Mount Carmel. You remember, he wanted to expose the impotence of the idols and the power of the one true God. You remember when God rained fire down from heaven. What a glorious thing it was. Though the true God revealed himself by sending down that hot blaze, so hot that it burned up the waterlogged altar and the sacrifice and the whole bit. Nevertheless, the kingdom of Israel never fully recovered from Jezebel's influence. Her persuasion corrupted God's people, as did this Jezebel who was wreaking havoc in Thyatira. Now, you've got to understand her teaching. The city of Thyatira was about 40 miles from Pergamos. It's set in a broad valley along a Roman road that ran from the coast inland. This city became known as a commercial center. It traded in wool and metals and purple dye. Acts chapter 16, you might remember, speaks of a woman in Philippi named Lydia. She was from Thyatira, and it was said she was a seller of purple. In the Roman world, whenever there were businesses, there were also trade guilds that grew up around these businesses. And society revolved around these trade guilds. It was a fixture of the Roman way of life. You see, the guilds, they were part labor union, part fraternity, part family, part country club. I mean, you spent your holidays at the guild. Your daughter would get married at the guild. These guilds also had a religious component, for each profession was dedicated to a pagan deity. Thus, to get a job in the garment industry, you had to pay homage to the patron god of dye making. That's how it worked. Of course, this created an immediate problem for a Christian. Participation in the guild was laced with idolatry and immorality. Attending the ceremonies, even eating the food, would all carry with it pagan connotations. During their gatherings, people would bow to the idols. Folks would get drunk. Party girls were hired. Guild meetings turned into immoral affairs, much like corporate parties today. I mean, how could a serious Christian take part? Yet to avoid these guilds was professional suicide. If a Christian wasn't tolerant enough to find some way to compromise, he couldn't work or feed his family. One of the early Christian fathers, Tertullian, he spoke of these trade guilds and the conflict they created. 
He talked about a Christian painter who was hired to decorate a pagan temple or a sculpture, a sculptor commissioned to carve an idol. What should they do in such cases? How could a Christian employ the talents that God had given him, had given him to use for God's glory in the glorification of an idol? And yet the worker might argue, this is my living. I must live. Well, Tertullian responded, must you live? His point being, Jesus was worth living for or dying for or starving for. You see, the true men of God insisted on no compromise. Whereas this Jezebel, she found a way around the conflict. She taught, what's the big deal? Oh, it's just a little pinch of incense that you're tossing on the altar. That's no big deal. Your pledge is nothing more than words. It's forgotten the next day. Even the wine and the women, that won't hurt anybody. It's just one night. It's like the business trip to Vegas or the fishing trip with your buddies or, or just tailgating with your friends on Saturday. You're just fitting in, man. You're just doing what's expected. God will understand that. You're just trying to placate your boss and keep your job. It's just business. You're doing it for your family anyway. Just tithe your money and it'll be okay. Probably what she said. <coughs> Jezebel had created... <coughs> Jezebel had created a theology that tolerated sin and justified compromise, even of a sexual variety. You see, she had created the rationale that separated what the church believed from how the church behaved. Understand, this is always unbiblical. And this kind of mentality sets off an avalanche of immorality. And I'm sure she had a prophetic word she used to justify all this. This was part of the scam. She prophesied approval of what the Bible prohibits. I recall another Jezebel doing the same thing. I remember when Earl Polk over in Decatur was running around and converting and committing adultery and all of the like. Stories came out that made the hair on the back of your neck curl. I remember, though, that he would justify his idolatry as, quote, kingdom relationships. Oh, this is special. This is a kingdom relationship. God approves of this. He made himself an exception. He put himself above, the, above God's rules. Sounds just like Jezebel. Jezebel was the queen of compromise. She concocted a way to justify spiritual and sexual infidelity. I can hear her now. Oh, what's wrong with sex outside marriage as long as it involves two consenting adults? Who says homosexuality is a sin? Oh, the Bible was written a long time ago. Society's enlightened now. Attitudes about morality have evolved. Christians can't always take the Bible seriously. There's room for compromise. Man, all the same nonsense we hear today. It's nothing but the Jezebel drivel. It's more concerned with satisfying glands than it is pleasing God. It's an insistence on tolerance over truth. I, recently, I, I was called in to help a church where the pastor had fallen into some sexual sin. And the first step we took was to remove the pastor from leadership. It was clear that he no longer met the biblical qualifications. But I'll never forget the church meeting where we explained our decision. One of the ladies, she spoke up. She said, 
We don't care what he's done. We know he loves us and he's a good pastor. We still want him to lead our church. I was appalled. Here was a woman who made no connection between a person's spiritual condition and their moral conduct. I had to tell this woman, hey, whether you, ca- whether you care or not is not the point. God cares. According to the scripture, spiritual life will produce moral purity. The two go hand in hand. Guys, we need to realize that God isn't about to release Bible 2.0. He's not. He's planning no upgrades to this book. There's not going to be an update. Trust me. The Bible is timeless. It might be hard to obey for rebel hearts, but the Word of God speaks truth to every age. Jezebel had watered this book down. She had made up her own rules. She had taught that you can tolerate sin and still love God. And that was blasphemous. Later, Jesus calls that the depths of Satan. She taught you could tolerate sin and still love God, but she taught wrong. And as we'll see in a minute, her followers in Thyatira suffered dire consequences. Sadly, though, this wasn't the last time the same evil spirit of Jezebel would infiltrate the Christian church. It's no accident that Jesus' letter to Thyatira follows his letter to Pergamos, the accommodating church. Pergamos merged worldly structures and pagan practices into Christianity. The compromise that began in Pergamos became full-blown heresy in Thyatira. That's certainly what we see from a historical perspective. You know, each week we've noted how that these local churches also parallel different eras of church history. Thyatira was the papal church from the Middle Ages, the period of church history that was dominated by corruption. The compromise with paganism that started when Emperor Constantine in the 4th century integrated pagan philosophy into the Christian, uh, Christian doctrine there in Rome. What started in the 4th century became rampant idolatry and heresy in coming centuries. For instance, Mary went from being a noble example to the mother of God. All kinds of idolatrous notions began to arise around Mary. Her perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, her ascension into heaven. This robbed Jesus of glory and diverted it to Mary. Today, Roman Catholicism even considers Mary to be a co-redeemer with our Lord Jesus Christ. This is blasphemous. It's interesting, a woman led Thyatira into idolatry, and likewise, the overemphasis of a woman threatened the Roman church in a similar way. Remember in the Old Testament, Queen Jezebel, she falsely accused Naboth of blasphemy. She wanted to steal his vineyard. Because she accused him of blasphemy, she took him out and she had him stoned. And this was the strategy used by the popes during the Middle Ages. The inquisitions became a tool to kill off their wealthy rivals and confiscate their rich wealth. During this era, the false doctrine of papal infallibility developed. and The selling of forgiveness took place. Both were spiritual masks to promote greed. Throughout the Middle Ages, it was common for the supposedly celibate popes to keep mistresses and to sire children. 
The historical church at Thyatira perfected the art of serving God on one hand and tolerating sin on the other hand. Reminds me of the hunter and the bear. The hunter had this bear right in the crosshairs of his rifle. When suddenly the bear spoke up, kind of got his attention. The bear says, hey, let's make a deal. What do you really want out of our relationship? The hunter replied, he said, well, I'm really, I'd really like a big, furry, bearskin coat. What do you want? The bear countered, well, I'd like a full stomach. Well, after a few hours of negotiation, the bear got up and walked away. The hunter's never been seen since, but they both got what they wanted. The moral of the story is beware of compromise. Tolerance leads to compromise, which leads to heresy, which leads to corruption, which leads to judgment. And Jesus has a dire warning for Thyatira, verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. The followers of Jezebel failed to honor the marriage bed, so God promises them a hospital bed. Realize Thyatira refused to see the correlation between a man's physical behavior and his spiritual condition, and so God is going to help them connect the dots. There will be a physical price to pay for their spiritual compromise. He's going to throw them into a sickbed. Their sin is going to cause sickness. Jesus continues in verse 22, And those who commit adultery with her will be cast into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. This is the direst warning yet. I mean, when we get over to Revelation chapter 6, the phrase great tribulation is going to scare you spitless. It's synonymous with horrible punishment. It's sobering to realize here that there were members of this church that had strayed so far from immorality and idol- or so far into immorality and idolatry that God was going to punish them with judgments designed not for believers but for this wicked evil world great tribulation he says is going to come upon them according to Jesus the followers of Jezebel are going to miss the rapture they're going to be cast into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds And notice verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. He didn't just lay down the ultimatum. He was merciful and gracious and patient, but there were limits to his patience. When the time was up, there was no going back. We all need to realize the role that repentance plays in the Christian life. You see, tolerance worries about other people's feelings. Tolerance avoids offending people. Whereas repentance is concerned about pleasing God. How he feels about the situation. Whether he is offended or not. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you approached a situation and worried about how God was going to feel about your actions? Not how you felt. Not how other people would feel. But how God was going to feel about what you did. For some of us, that has never really happened. God has feelings too. And in the end, pleasing God will be a much wiser course of action than pleasing myself or pleasing the crowd. You see, repentance was the antidote for what ailed Thyatira. She needs to stop pleasing herself and she needs to start pleasing the Lord. And you know, here's the irony. Pleasing the Lord is also good for us. 
Why is it we think tolerance is a loving virtue while intolerance is cruel and mean and prejudicial? I mean, what kind of love is it that tolerates what's harmful and evil? If I really love someone, I'm going to be intolerant of what's dangerous to their spiritual and physical health. In fact, we're intolerant all the time in our society. I mean, you can't drink alcohol while driving a school bus. We're pretty intolerant of that, aren't we? You can't operate power tools unless you pass a drug test. I mean, we're pretty straight on that. It's not a loving expression for us to encourage you in behaviors that we know are going to be harmful to you and to others. That's why if the leaders of Calvary Chapel condoned immorality or tolerated false doctrine, if we didn't speak up and oppose what we know to be wrong, we'd be guilty of malpractice. Here's an interesting comparison I ran across this week. Tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love replies, I'll do something harder. I'll tell you the truth even if you don't like me afterwards because I'm convinced it's the truth that will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to go my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I'll risk a friendship and plead with you to follow the right way. Hey, when you go to the doctor, don't you want to hear the truth? I mean, don't you? Don't you want the doctor to tell you the truth? I mean, say your doctor announces, man, you're a perfect specimen of health. And then you walk right out the door and drop over a heart attack. You'd be angry with your doctor, wouldn't you? I mean, you want to know why he wasn't honest. You were a, de- you were a jelly donut short of the big one. And he didn't tell you. He covered it up, man. He lied to you. He withheld the truth. And what if you confronted him and he replied, Well, I know your body was in worse shape than the Pillsbury Doughboy, but if I tell people stuff like that, they'll get offended. It's bad for business, really. They won't come back. I want my office to be a safe place where folks feel loved and accepted. And yet that is exactly the reason some pastors give for avoiding the tough texts and steering clear of the controversial topics. Churches today think it's their job to dilute the truth rather than to give it to us straight. Sometimes the Word of God isn't fuzzy and warm feeling. See, my job isn't to grind up the Word into indiscernible mush so its ingredients are no longer recognizable. That's what you do with baby food. It's not up to me to twist the Word or dole it out in small bites or, or to alter it in any way. It's up to you to soften your heart and receive the Word. That's what, that's what you need to do. You need to repent. Repentance and change is your part. And if the compromisers in Thyatira don't repent, Jesus tells us in verse 23 what he'll do. And it's not pretty. He says, I will kill her children, or literally her followers, with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. And I hope you notice here, those words are in red letters, aren't they? Look in your Bible. Aren't they in red letters? They are. You know what that means? That means they're the words of Jesus. 
And not some soft, sissified Jesus. The figment of somebody's imagination. This is the battle-ready Jesus. This is the Jesus who's willing to go to war, who will go to war. And not just with the evil out there, but with the evil in here, in this church. He'll clean up his church first. As he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's true. The same Jesus who died to save your soul will bust your chops if you try to play him for the fool and pretend he doesn't care about how you really live. You show your love for Jesus not just by the creed that you quote, but by how you work and how you have sex and how you spend money and how you get along with your neighbor and how you order your daily life. You show your love for Jesus in practical ways. There is no separation between the condition of our heart and the conduct of our lives. It shouldn't be. Remember what happened to old Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament? Wasn't pretty. She was thrown from a tower. She was crushed under chariot wheels. And then she was picked apart by a pack of dogs. And why will Jesus treat this Jezebel and her followers any differently? Their sins were basically the same. You see, Jesus makes this Jezebel an example to all churches who flirt with spiritual compromise and sexual sin. Never think that you can love God and tolerate sin and God be happy about it. Verse 24. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine... Who have not known the depths of Satan as they say. I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. Now here's a positive for a church that needs some positives. Not everyone there has been duped by Jezebel. Not all believers have plunged the depths of Satan. And learned the dark art of how to sin and serve simultaneously. No, this church still has some faithful believers. And here the Lord tells them to simply hold fast. Hold on. Remember that God's truth always trumps tolerance. I think verse 24 brings up a provocative point. Thyatira represented a compromised religious system. And yet there were church members here who managed not to get contaminated. This proves to me that it is possible to be a true believer even in a heretical environment. For example, is Catholicism guilty of idolatry when it comes to Mary and the mass, and papal infallibility? Absolutely it is. But that doesn't make idolaters out of all Catholics. There are bona fide believers in every church who live a genuine faith. They submit to God's will and cling to His grace and have faith in Christ alone. This is good. And to these true believers, Jesus promises in verse 26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. The person who submits to Jesus now will rule with him then. Jesus will return to this earth to reign with a rod. Jesus quotes Psalm 2 next, the big stick passage. He says, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Like breaking clay jars with a baseball bat. When Jesus returns, he's going to crush the ungodly with an enforced righteousness. Hey, the age of tolerance will one day come to an end. 
as does his dire letter to Thyatira, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. What a wonderful gift this is. Here are the masters present to the believer who overcomes the spirit of compromise and refuses to accommodate sin in an age of misguided tolerance. Jesus promises to such person the morning star. This is the star that turns off the night and ushers in the day. This is the last light in the heavens that appear before the daybreak. And what event does this sound like to you? How about the rapture of the church? The morning star. For just before the day of the Lord's judgment rises over planet earth, the church will be treated to an early exit. Jesus will snatch us away. The morning star will come for his people. He's coming back. Hey, here's the message of the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus is what's next. So you be faithful. You hold fast to the truth. You pay attention to this dire warning to Thyatira. As verse 29 tells us, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you for your word today, for your love for us. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us take heed to your truth. Lord, help us to be intolerant of sin in our own lives. Intolerance of false doctrine and corruption within your church. Help us, Lord, to seek to love purely and to, and to know rightly. Lord, I pray that you would help the church to be the kind of church you want us to be. That we would be a pure and spotless bride awaiting the return of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts today, Father, as we meditate on these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,